You're listening to audio from Mercy's Door Community Church in Mascouda, Illinois. If you'd like to get more information about Mercy's Door, we'd love for you to connect with us on Facebook or check us out at mercysdoor.org. This opening sentence is kind of going to be our compass for the whole morning. Guys, we'll just look at it together real quick. Let not your hearts be troubled. Let not your hearts be troubled. Mercy's Door. This sentence from our Lord Jesus spoken to his closest friends is the heart, the posture from which all the rest of our text this morning is going to flow. Jesus Christ in the flesh is looking at his beloved and he's speaking over them. Let not your heart be troubled. And then he's going to say a whole lot more to the end of achieving what he's commanding. He desires to to show compassion and tender care and to encourage troubled hearts with all that we are going to read this morning. And so in order to get the maximum benefit of spending time looking at this interaction with Jesus, I think we need to bring before him our troubled hearts to allow him to speak these truths which he considered to be effective to speaking to the troubled hearts of his dearest friends to let these words wash over us this morning. I'll confess that um, yesterday, I, uh, yesterday afternoon, I, I conducted a funeral, and it was a hard one. As a pastor, there are funerals that you uh, maybe look forward to. The 100-year-old old lady who dies in a rocking chair with a Bible in her lap. But we don't get to do a lot of those, right? And this particular one was especially difficult in that the deceased was a 24-year-old woman who had endured unspeakable things in her life, grew up faster than she should have had to, brought children into the world as a teenager, lost them. Um several stays in prison, and the end cap was an overdose on heroin. And a funeral like that, it draws a certain kind of crowd. And so filled in the room yesterday as I'm preaching over this funeral are really two rooms. One are those who ran with the deceased in her addiction, and the other being those who desperately loved her and desired to see her pulled from it, and ultimately didn't get to see that. And so preaching the gospel at this space, you know, I talked to a friend who planted a church in uh, rural North Carolina, and he does about 20 of these uh, opioid overdose funerals for members of his church a year. And I called him, and I said, help me, man. I've never done this before. And he said, preach to the believers first. Remind them of their hope in Christ and then turn to those who could be next and make sure that they hear the gospel. And so I did. I spent 22 minutes-ish preaching the gospel to a room of addicts. And I watched the Lord doing some things in a handful of them that I'm praying he carries with them home and, and continues to do a work there. I'm I'm praying. But I recognize, in, in that my, I, the reason I bring it up is because I'd been preparing this sermon for today, and it's this text that ended up being central to my sermon yesterday. And so I'm preaching it again 
to a different room for a different reason. But if this text was sufficient to be a comfort in that space last night, then it's sufficient to be a comfort to you in this space today. But maybe the difference between the two rooms is that that room, there was no denying its brokenness. The tears were already flowing. The awareness of self was high. So there wasn't a front-end labor to do to, to bring somebody to an awareness that I need hope and encouragement before speaking that hope and encouragement over them. And yet, for some of us, we came in here this morning hardened. Maybe not feeling like we need encouragement this morning, and so you're going to be unable to receive it from me because you're believing that this is for someone else. I want you to hear it squarely on the front end this morning that I'm preaching to you. And my prayer is that as we work through the way that Jesus works this encouragement into the hearts of his beloved, that you will see how this is for you. Now he starts with, let not your hearts be troubled. Why is he saying this? We've been working left to right through this book for some time. We know why he's saying this. I mean, let's go back. He just said Peter's going to deny him three times. He had just said that one of the 12 was going to betray him, but didn't tell them who it was going to be. We see in the chapter before that, that there's a plot that is moving forward among the Jews to kill Jesus after he raises Lazarus. And one of his verbal sparrings most recently, he told them directly the way in which he intends to die, that he was going to die by crucifixion. So if you are in the inner circle of Jesus, you've been walking with him for three years, you've hedged all of your bets on him, and you are walking with him this week, on this day, and you're hearing one's going to betray you, one of us is going, Peter's going to deny you, you're going to be crucified, you're talking about crucifixion, Jesus? Your heart's going to be troubled. He's not talking about general anxiety, general agitation. He's talking about very rational fear that sizes up the situation and measures our ability in the flesh, sees that it doesn't stack up, and rightly feels an agitated heart, a troubled heart. At the funeral yesterday, as we talked about the brokenness of the world, what I hope that you'll see here is what we're talking about is evil advancing on the face of the earth. Evil in your own life, evil around you, evil in the news. We're talking about a people who were seeing with their own eyes evil advancing, persecution, heating up, pursuit of Jesus to kill him. And it had made its way into their inner circle. One was going to be a betrayer. So it wasn't evil out there. Evil right here. Peter's going to deny him. This is super intimate, okay? Similarly, you look out at the world. You look out at your life. And you see evil advancing in different corners of your world. New forms of evil taking root in the, cult, in the culture, right? Right? New types of sin cropping up in your family. New stories of brokenness and hurt advancing. So we're, we're asking, Lord, is the plan still good? Is it still in play? Are you still in control? Are you still Messiah? Are you still king? Are you still doing this, all the stuff that you promised? 
Have we got this wrong? Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled in light of all that I've just said, Peter denying me, Judas betraying me, me being crucified. Let not your hearts be troubled. Why? Believe in God. Believe also in me. This word belief for believing in God, believing in Jesus, we, we throw it away because we say it so much in, in Christian circles, right? Like, I believe in Jesus. Okay, I don't mean believing in Jesus, and Jesus doesn't mean believing in Jesus like a child believes in Santa Claus or, or that you, you, something becomes true because you believe in it. We're talking about something being so true that it's worthy of your belief. It's an earned belief. It's a belief that, like in a, in a game of tug-of-war, where you're looking and you see two opponents tugging and you, and you size it up and you, and you determine which one's bigger, which one's got the bigger grip, which one's got the bigger posture. You're like, I believe in that guy because all the signs are telling me that this is the one that you want to hedge your bets on. But Jesus is talking about a level of belief that goes one further, that shows Jesus on one side of the rope and everything else on the other side and says, believe in me. Not looking at your circumstances to inform how strong your faith can be in him in this moment, but looking to him as the way, truth, and life, which we'll get to. Because all of us are inclined to do one of two things every day of this Christian walk. We're all inclined to either look at our circumstances and let that inform for us who God is and what he's doing or not doing, or to look at God and let him tell us who he is and what he is doing and not doing. We look to God to make sense of our circumstances, or we look to our circumstances to make sense of God. And Jesus is calling his people here, not let not your heart be troubled, believe in me. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Head your bets on me. Pin your hope on me. Believe in me. I can do it. I've got this. I, I can do it. Believe in me. I won't fail you. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? So now he taps into this believe in me. Well, believe in me unto what? Believe in me for what? For your seat at the table for your room in my father's house. He's talking about the kind of belief, you remember the parable that Jesus told where there's the man who finds a treasure in a field and so he buries it and then he goes and he sells everything that he has for joy in order to buy that field because he knows what's there so he counts everything else as loss for the surpassing worth of that treasure, the kingdom of God, that seat at the table, that room in the father's house. He's saying all of these things that are agitating your, your heart, all these things that are troubling you when you look out at the world and you just see brokenness and darkness and evil and death. Count it all as loss. Believe in me. 
I've got a room for you in my father's house that I go to prepare. He says that he goes to prepare what I have told you. If it were not so, what I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. When Jesus talks about going to prepare a place for us in the father's house, we're talking about like going through a cross, going into a grave, going to the right, seat, right hand of the father where he reigns forever, right? We're talking about a Jesus who didn't just like say, wait here and walk over here and start working on it. Jesus left that place, came here, and then passed through all the things that we fear and then entered into the thing that we want most in order that we can join him in it. This is really important because we, if we identify with him, if he identifies with us in our weakness, we are able to identify with him and his power. In my Father's house are many rooms, and I want you to picture them as vacant rooms, okay? Vacant rooms, the Father's house. Imagine this palace, this beautiful place, the Father's house. There are many rooms, and apparently there's no one in them because Jesus goes and picks out an empty room and starts preparing it for you. There's space for you. We're talking about, as we get to the famous line here in a little bit, of Jesus being the way, we're talking about Jesus being a door, a key, a passage of transit, all of the things to take residence in the Father's house. Many rooms, but he says that also not just that he goes to prepare it, but that it is he who prepares it. And this is my first major point for you all this morning is that when Jesus says that it's he who goes to prepare a place for you, what that means is that you don't prepare the place for yourself. Jesus, in trying to bring peace to his people, let not your hearts be troubled, is going to speak directly to a series of doubts and fears and insecurities and great desires that we have that we fear won't be fulfilled. And this first one that he speaks to is, there's a place for you? There's room for you? Number one. Number two, I go to prepare it for you. And so I don't know on each one of these who I'm speaking to this morning. So you're going to tell me with eye contact, okay? But the first thing is this agitation that we have is, is there a room for me at all? Is there space for me? And this one speaks to my soul. And I don't, I'll be careful because I want to honor my father but my, my folks split when I was young, and when they divorced, my dad was a, tr a local delivery driver, and so in, in his singleness, he was unable to provide what they were able to provide as a, as a dual-income family. So when they split, both homes entered into poverty. And my father had kind of less of a support system, and so when we would go and stay with him, he had moved into a one-bedroom apartment in a, uh, a, a shoddy neighborhood, and so when me and my three siblings would go and stay with him, we'd all like crash in sleeping bags on the, living room, on the living room floor. And I remember at the time, even at the time as a kid, I understood poverty enough to understand that this isn't some sign that my father doesn't care. But it did communicate to me at some level to my child's mind that my father's not able to make room for me. That in this fracturing of the family, that now my parents are not able to make room for me, that now in some way we're not okay, there's not safety, there's not security, there's not assurance of a place to lay your head down, right? And it took some time for that to change. 
And so that was a real thing for me. How much more so when we think about the Father's house for some of us? Like some of us maybe wouldn't say about God, it's not that he's not willing, but maybe he's not able. Maybe God's not able to make room for me either because I'm too far gone. Just taking a real good account of our sin. Or he's just too impotent. He's not able to save. He's a well-intending God who's not able to do what he wills. Or maybe he doesn't know. But we just start ascribing all sorts of attributes to God that start to doubt, create with the seed of doubt in us, that there's room for us at his table, that he can make room for us, that he has made room for us. So Jesus leads with it. In my Father's house, there's room. First thing, full stop. And if it were not so, would I have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. This is the second thing that he appeals to. And you are not responsible for preparing your place in that house. A good friend of mine, his name is Robert, he used to always give this illustration, so I use it a lot now too, because I think of it all the time. He says, it's like we are on a, sometimes it's like we Christians are on a, um, like a plane to Hawaii. And halfway through the flight, we forgot that we were going somewhere and started believing that the plane is our home. And so we start jockeying for more leg room and like fighting for extra packets of peanuts, right? And like just start behaving like we've arrived and this is home now and I've got to make a place for myself. And, and, and I've, got to, I've got to prepare this spot for me. And you can see that in a lot of different behaviors if you think about your life, the way that you just try to expand your footprint. You know, I was literally taught this when I was in the business world. I, I was at some negotiating tables in my former career. And I was told that when you sit down at a table at a business meeting, you want to take up as much physical space as possible in order to assert a position of dominance over the people you're negotiating with. But we kind of do that like with our lives. We just expand our footprint, expand our influence, try to gain the approval of man, try to gain the stuff of the earth. So whether it's through creature comforts or, or just... just um, What's the word for it? Like materialism and vanity. Just surround ourselves with creature comforts because this is ultimately my home. And I don't, either they don't think I've got a room in, in the Father's house or I don't think that it's going to be that great. I, I'm not going to like the way it was prepared for me. So I'll take this. And it's to prefer slop to a banquet feast. The place that is prepared for us in the Father's house has been prepared by the hand of Jesus, and so we don't need to prepare it for ourselves. I'd like to take this one deeper. Um, this didn't occur to me until this morning, so it's not a well-thought-out point, and um, if, if it causes um, debate and stuff, that's okay. I'm totally great with talking about it more. Um, but I want to say it anyway. I realize that if we do this in our uh, immediate sphere, that the perpetuation of this would be that we do it on the grander scale. That we start to think about not just how we uh, prepare a place for ourselves in our home and in our immediate surroundings, but we start thinking about the world. And we start saying, this is all there is. And so there is ultimate importance in creating a world 
that is a more comfortable home for us. And so it starts in your town and then your nation and then the globe, right? And if, if everybody would just see things the way I see them or do things the way that, that I would do them, that I'd be more comfortable. And I'm not veering into eschatology here. There might be some in this room, and if I'm speaking over your head, I'm not talking to you. But there's someone in, there might be someone in this room who is, has this view of the end times that says it's the church's responsibility to roll out the red carpet for Jesus' return, essentially, and that we're supposed to reconstruct this earth to make it better reflect heaven. And there's room for you at my table, although I think you're wrong. But I don't find in table talk that that's often the mindset that is driving the impulse to want very much to improve things in my town and in my nation and in my world. What I find instead is that this is a worldview that already appeals to my standard position, which is to be anxious about the way of things, the nature of the earth. Things are broken, and we don't like it. And is there room, I, well, I would say not only is there room, are we called, yes, we are called, to get our eyes fixed on the ways of the Lord and to walk in those ways on earth and to pray that he would use that activity to create these little pockets that point to heaven. That's very much true. But I don't find that that's often the heart posture that leads to all of the busy activity that we see. It's not that I fixed my eyes on the Lord and I've been so comforted that I desire to bring that comfort to others. It's I'm terrified and I'm angry and I want to strong arm people into creating spaces that I enjoy living in. And Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. For those of us who are functioning in the way I've just described, we are super similar to the original disciples. They wanted to see Jesus hoisted upon an earthly throne. They wanted to see this side of heaven just made better. They would have settled for a Messiah that gave them more, just a more comfortable existence. But he was going further than that. And then he says, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also, and you know the way to where I am going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going, so how can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So here is maybe another illustration I want you to picture that the Father's house is on Google Maps, okay? And he's saying, if you're agitated that maybe there's not a place, I assure you, there's a place. It's called my Father's house, Nevada. And I built it. So you don't have to worry about preparing that. Well, that's great, Jesus, but I don't know the way. Jesus says, I'll show you the way. I'm the way. Well, the next anxiety that follows is, okay, there is a place, there is room. I've got a map. I don't have a car. I can't get myself there. He goes one further and he says, 
I will come again and I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. You see, we're, we're seeing Jesus just with like layers of clarity saying, the Father's house, my construction. Your place in it, I've prepared. The way to it, through me. The vessel, I'll get you there. I will literally carry you there. And some of us, that's where we're at. Is it's like we believe all of that right up until the point where he says, he'll come and get us. We see it, we believe it, we want it. We'll even take a map. But we're printing out the MapQuest instructions and he's like, call an Uber. You don't need to know the way, like just get in. I'm, I'm going to take you there. We see a Jesus who, when he says, follow me, means it less like he's a Kenyan marathon runner and you're running behind him, trying to follow him, just struggling to keep up and constantly terrified that he's gonna, you're going to lose him in the distance and, and you're going to have to figure it out from there. And more like follow me like a freight train engine has rail cars following it. I'm the branch, or, and you are the vine. We, we follow him, but it's more like grab on than it is keep up. Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you'd known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on, you do know him, and you have seen him. You know, this brings me back to the funeral last night, where I, I said to this room of addicts, if this is all there is, if we're going to get really honest about the brokenness of the thing, and this is all there is, opiates make a lot of sense to me making a rational decision. I want out. I want better. I want higher. I want, I want out. And that such a great multitude of those addicts either by accident or willfully give up their lives later on, also very rational. My out didn't turn out to be a great out. I want out, out. If this is all there is, church, if we're making our own way, if the airplane is the destination, if you're running out of peanuts, jump out. It's not so irrational, but my appeal to the group was, but if there's more, if there is better, if there is one, then you owe it to yourself to find out. And so I just invited them to come and behold him with me. And he says, if you'd known me, you would have known my father also. And from now on, you do know him and you have seen him. Philip said, show us the father. That would be enough for us. And Jesus said, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me Philip, there's no way that you've been with Mercy's Door for the last three months and haven't at some point gathered that Jesus is God, that Jesus and the Father are one, 
It's been like the loudest message of this gospel account. This is one of my favorite passages to concisely express it. Show us the Father. How long have you been with me and you still don't know me? Jesus and the Father are one. He's the way, he's the truth, he is eternal life. Taking a quick pause to talk about what it means when Jesus says that he is the truth. He means it in any number of ways that um, could be sermons in and of themselves. But the main way that I wanted you guys to hear it this morning is that Jesus is the truth about God. See, because your mind and your enemy and the world are going to tell you all kinds of things about God. But Jesus is the truth about him. And sometimes when you don't have a well-developed theology on a given matter, you've got lots, I've got lots, the starting point is, does this sound like Jesus? Does this look like Jesus? It's not a fail-safe, because Jesus is complex. But when some, something new comes into your ear, something strange comes into your ear, something that agitates your heart comes into your ear, something unsettling comes into your heart, and people are claiming that this is Christian, that this is about that this is godlike this is godly and you can't make it make sense in light of who you know Jesus to be it's worth ex- going back to the scriptures and exploring further i'll go that far he is the truth if you've seen him you've seen the father and what i love about john is that it's a very repetitive gospel um, Jesus had a repetitive ministry because he had a singular message that he was spreading. And so it, and John documents these interactions. And so I, I borrow from previous sermons a lot in, because it's a, it's a, he's building a case. And here, what Jesus is saying and saying that he and the Father are one, that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He's encouraging us to allow him to refine our, because remember, his audience was mostly Jewish. He wants us to allow him to refine our understanding of the Father that we get from the, from the law and from the Old Testament. He came to fulfill it, but he also came to clarify it. The Jews were getting wrong the heart of God, even as they were observing the laws of God. And so Jesus wanted to come and clarify some things about the truth about who God is and what his activity was meant to point to, chiefly Jesus. I bring it up to this non-Jewish audience to say that I know that one of the primary ways that we feel like we need to get our way to our place in the Father's house is through obedience to the law. It's through a self-made self-righteousness that through my good works, through my achievements, through, through forsaking sin and, and, for, and for feeding the poor and whatever else, 
that we're believing that one day we will stand before God and we will give an account for our lives and that we will receive entry into the Father's house on the basis of what we've done. At the very least, we're just trying to be better than someone else. So that if there's only one room left, he'll pick us. It's a scarcity mindset, and it's a works-based mindset, and it leads to the pits of hell. There are many rooms in the Father's house, room enough for you on the basis of what? The way, the merits of Christ alone, the life lived for you, the death died for you, the resurrection that went before you that you might join him in his death and resurrection. No, Jesus is reigning at the right hand of the Father today, mercy's door. He's on the throne. He's not just saying truth like a professor. He is the truth. All things bow to him. All things yield to him. He is in total authority over all things, including the fractured corners of your existence. And so when your heart is troubled, he says, the place to look is me. Behold me on my throne. Behold me, the risen Christ. Behold me, the one who could use a Roman cross to save the world. I know that if you could write the story, you'd leave out all the best parts. You would. So would I. We'd write the story in such a way that everything was cozy all the time, right? And God just didn't get any glory. But the story that he's written, he enters into the depths in order to carry us to the highest. But he is the only way. Do you not believe that I am in the Father? And the Father is in me. The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. What works? Calvary. He says, I go to prepare a place for you. You don't believe? Look at the works. Look at the cross. Look at the empty tomb. How often are these the figures that we, are, that we are bringing ourselves before as we think about this daily life, when our hearts are troubled? Do we say, Jesus has got this, like a platitude? Or do we see King Jesus on the throne, resurrected from the dead, and say, Jesus has got this? Jesus says that the answer for the trouble of our hearts is to look to him and to understand that he and the Father are one and that he has made a way. Church, I pray that as we worked our way through that, that one of these, even just one, the Lord was able to use to put a finger on your predisposition to a troubled heart. Each and every one of us is in some way struggling in certain seasons of our life with doubts about, is there a place? Is there room for me in it? Is the way it's been prepared actually better than this life? How do I get there? Can I get there? Will he bring me? 
And Jesus says, to all of these anxieties, look to the works and let not your hearts be troubled. Let's pray.